Coming to you a day late this week with the Full of Chit Chat podcast. And so I'm going to make up for it, uh, make up for the lateness uh, with quality. And so I have for you um, not only a dear friend of mine, um, but I am, uh, I say this with full conviction, uh, truly one of my uh, favorite people from the uh, labor movement uh, in Canada, one of the people I am most uh, excited about uh, to be in a position of um, uh, to be in a position of leadership in in the labor movement anywhere in the country uh, from uh, the BCGEU, the treasurer of uh, it's the largest union in BC, isn't it? Or one of them? Uh, it's, it's up there. Uh, no, thanks, Charlie. It's it's uh, it's it's. I'd say us in KPBC. There's a lot of back and forth on it. Uh, I think. I don't think it matters, but uh, yeah, we're, we're up there. But it's Paul Finch, everybody. It's Paul Finch. It, it, he, it, it may not be the biggest union, uh, but he's the biggest dude. Um, we're talking certainly the most, the most muscular of BC's many labor leaders. That's not typically been historically a, a difficult contest to win, but, but certainly there, there is no longer any um, disputing it at, at this point. I don't. I don't think that's been true for a good four or five years. <laughs> no, who are, the, who, are no. The, who are these ripped? Uh, who's your ripped competition in the uh, in the labor movement in British Columbia? I have not. I don't know, but I I imagine they're out there. I uh, especially not during pandemic period. I think I just you know we've all been hunkered down. All all of our routines have kind of fallen apart. So. Oh man, I I did the exact opposite for the whole first half of the of the pandemic. I'm saying half very optimistically, uh, or optimistically or pessimistically, right? This was supposed to be. I remember feeling uh, like a month ago or, or two months ago when the vaccines were all coming out, and I was buying like a box of masks, and I was like, "This is it, my last box of masks for the pandemic." Um, and now it's just like that's how many masks I feel like I have to wear to go into a store. Um, but, uh, the, uh, the, um, I forget, I forget, I got, I depressed myself so much with what I just said that I forgot what I was saying. Oh yeah. I got into this incredible exercise routine that you were, um, you know, certainly, uh, part of my inspiration for. And I, 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 I you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to make this all about, uh, you know, this, but I, I lost like 40 pounds and, the, and, and it was a good year to lose weight because everybody else was gaining weight. So, you know, <laughs> uh, it, you know, all really reality is relational, right? So that was like losing 40 pounds in a year where everybody else gains 40 pounds is like losing 80 pounds any other year. But um, uh, <clears throat> now in the last little while, I'm just like completely, static like like nothing just 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 full slug it's uh it's 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 really uh it's really been tough I, it, like it, i this this whole thing is just uh i mean it, it feels like understatement of the year but it just uh or the millennium but it just it's really coming in waves man like well i think it's it's allowing us to understand how uh, the conscious creation and provision of rituals or ritualistic behavior to demarcate our various lives, our, you know, our personal life, our professional life, our family life, everything else, that when that's interrupted and there isn't a conscious motivated effort to reconstruct or create new uh, ritualistic patterns of behavior that create those demarcations, that the result is, is what you see now, which is the, 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 you know, one activity bleeds into the other. Yeah. And, yeah. 
and and that's what you get. You, you basically you lose a lot of your routines, but you also uh, work or working from home or um, that all just kind of takes over everything. And, and people are discovering that, that these things that we take for granted as being unconscious because they've been provisioned for us by nature of our relationship to like the place that we're working, that stuff we take for granted is we have to realize that we need to take personal responsibility to, to create that reality or to create those demarcation boundaries that are usually set for us um, by employers or otherwise. Can we expect to see more ceremonial language in BCGU contracts going forward? Or like, is it, I mean, <clears throat> that's a slightly sarcastic way of asking the question, but like, is there, is there a place for the labor movement in creating space for people in a, uh, because we, that is one of the problems of a secular or desacralized uh, society. Right. And I mean, I'm, I'm not arguing for a return to, Christendom or any other kind of like theocratic setup. I, I think we have to have people's, uh, you know, religious or spiritual uh, decisions. Those have to be private and personal, um, uh, you know, uh, decisions. But like we, we've been left with this space uh, where, uh, like, as you say, this, this flattening effect where the only uh, thing that shapes our lives is the market um, there's no longer even the structure of like a shared day where it used to be like you couldn't shop on Sundays and then, uh, and then you couldn't shop outside of uh, regular working hours. And, uh, you know, now we're just in this, we're, we're just in this constant state of floating market time where you can shop whenever you want, you can get it delivered whenever you want, you can, you know, but that's, that's also the only Liberty you have is is to to float in this free form free form anchorless um, market space. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, what's the main delineating factor of any major religion? It's their calendar, right? And, and it's their calendar for a very clear purpose. Um, and and most of them carry a, a religious or a liturgical count a liturgical series of events throughout that calendar that are intimately tied to how they track time. Um, so you'll, I mean, that's, there's a number of examples and I won't get, get onto them here, but um, you know, that if you look at the purpose of the industrialization of society, but also the breakdown of community groups, when, when um, the dominant religions that we see today that most people are part of came into effect, one of the underlying reasons for, for how they were implemented was to break down tribal and familial loyalties and, and affiliations and to create a situation where those were no longer holding society back right. but rather played a, a co-nascent or co-sympathetic role with society and um, the problem with the industrial revolution is that it broke apart even the strands of the extended family group and so you didn't have that support network you didn't have that and and to take the place of that you saw um, you know the, the localized religious gathering place was really a form of community regardless of whether or not you were a believer or a non-believer or whatever that was the community gathering place that was critical to having some kind of community support in a situation where everyone's been you know mass migrated uh yeah. to you know and this case a place where you know the, the initial inhabitants a lot of them were genocided out um and their land stolen and then and then afterwards um basically stripped of the, the immigrants themselves stripped of their own culture, their means of supporting themselves brought into a new means. And, and what's happened lately, of course, is then, and I think 
recent immigrant families to uh, to Canada experience this quite a bit too, is within a couple generations is that it strips down the bonds beyond the immediate nuclear family. And one of the, it, what that has a whole bunch of effects, but it even has a deleterious effect on people's participation in their community organizations like religious organizations. And when it comes to unions, it shifted the union from being that, that place of a fundamental sense of community and mutual aid and support to being uh, where many people view it as like an insurance policy, right? I, Not a vibrant democratic organization in which they're obligated to participate. So this to me is like the absolute crux of, uh, and, and then there's so much I want to talk to you about right now, uh, uh, including, and, and then let's, so let's put a pin in this uh, for, for, for later, because I do want to talk to you about uh, the former CEO of the Great Canadian Gaming Corporation, who is right now the, the most sort of uh, detested cartoon capitalist villain in, in Canada because of his uh, uh, vaccine uh, chicanery. Um, alleged, uh, uh, but for real, um, I, in the in the Yukon, and and who has a relationship to to the workers in in your union, and so I do want to talk about all that stuff. But I, like uh, this this big picture question to me is like the most pressing question for labor and social democratic organization. Because if you if you read, um, uh, I forget what the name of the book is, and it's and it's like. It's within arm's reach of me right now, uh, but, but it's under another book. But it's, uh, it's a Mike Davis book, Old Enigmas, something, something. Anyway, and he, he writes about, uh, you know, during what we think of as like the, the sort of heyday of industrial socialism or Marxism and the, the, role, the cultural role of, of political parties and trade unions as like a thing where if you were one of these working class uh, if if you were a member of the working class of one of these like advanced industrial economies in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it determined the bar you went to, the the sports club you were a part of, the uh, uh, you know the the probably the church you went to, like like X Y Z across the board in in your life were determined by these. By, by these by these social political economic um, factors and 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 I, what you've just described the union as 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 an insurance policy is is is, an, is on the one hand like so bleak but also so spot on um, in terms of the reduced idea that people have of what the union is supposed to be in their life um, at the same time we have social democratic parties like the NDP that really People, people don't really think of them as much more than just uh, donor lists and, and like email contacts for, for voter mobilization. Like being a member of the party used to be something that was like an ongoing sort of part of one's cultural life. And is there any way for those organizations to, be, to become culturally relevant to their members well, to become membership organizations again, to get out of that kind of sterility. Well, I think you kind of, uh, to deal with the NDP first, because I think it's a good example of what's happening. Um, I, when I joined the NDP, I was a teenager and the membership numbers were still sequential, which meant, you know, they were still issued in the sequence. So you could tell somebody's uh, providence if they were as a social Democrat uh, by how large their membership or how small their membership number was, right? And... Uh, when the party moved off of that system and randomized the membership numbers, 
uh, like they do today, that was kind of for me almost like the the canary, and we're moving away from being a membership organization. Hmm. And and so the NDP of today has moved like its its roots were in the CCF, right? Which were which was a populist movement that was the direct lineal inheritor of the populist movement in the United States. That's the Canadian Commonwealth Federation, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that entire uh, that entire experience, right, of, you know, what were the fundamental things that the populist movement fought for, right? It was uh, cheap credit um, for farmers so that they wouldn't be evicted off their land and replaced by, multi, you know, agricultural conglomerates, which is what the struggle in India with Punjabi farm workers and not just Punjabi farm workers, but majority Punjabi farm workers is about. Um, it was about be- being able to uh, have more democratic forms of governance, uh, this kind of stuff. And, and that was the that was the basis of the populist movement, right? I mean, that's the uh, the Wizard of Oz is part esoteric religious metaphor, part metaphor for the populist movement in the United States, and and that that was really the foundational basis for the CCF, the Canadian Commonwealth Federation, um, and it was de- designed as a mass party. Which the idea is this: it's that you get you get a whole bunch of people together, you train a whole bunch of people up. You have hundreds and hundreds of people that know what they're doing, that, that uh, are good organizers, et cetera, mainly infused from the tra- labor movement. And in turn, they're able, and it was really an alliance between the labor movement and the urban centers and, and the resource labor movement in the, in the rural areas, and uh, an alliance with kind of the small farmers from these communities, mainly in you know, Baptist and other religious congregations across the prairies, that was the initial alliance of the CCF and, and the early NDP. Yeah. And, but it was a mass party, which meant that you had a ton of people. And of course, this- And what a we ton of people th- who were not, uh, it should be said, selected on the basis of having the right opinions and having the right, like one of the things about trade union politics is that you, it forces you to deal with the people who are in the room with you. It's not necessarily about finding the right room for you to fit into as much as it's about like, okay, what do I do with the people who are at hand? Yeah. So, so historically a constituency association or a riding association in a social democratic party, like the NDP was the root of democracy in the party. And today it's a shell it's used for fundraising purposes. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the shift we've seen in our lifetime. And it's not just those social democratic parties. It's, I mean, uh, when the liberal party said, well, we're, we're just going to open up, open up voting to the Canadian populace as a whole, it was basically saying we're no longer a political party in the conventional sense. Yeah. Right. We're more of a brand than a political party. Yeah. I mean, well, and you're seeing it right now play out at the, um, at the level of uh, at the municipal level in Vancouver with the traditional right-wing party. I mean, traditionally the center right um, coalition of, you know, what was the coalition of, liberals and conservatives, which is why it's called the NPA or nonpartisan association. It's become a bit of a misnomer in recent years, particularly as, you know, the city had been governed by a kind of working coalition of, of you know, federal liberals and, and NDPers, um, on, you know, under Vision Vancouver. Um, but, you know, right now there's this split between the, uh, you know, the, the, the electeds of, of the NPA on council and, you know, these people on the board of the party who are seemingly sort of at least somewhat uh, aligned or are seen as being kind of coming from this basically Trumpist uh, uh, hard right. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting because it, it's really always been a coalition of people. Mm-hmm. And that, and what's hidden the fact that you, you tend to get these far-right extremists inside your coalition has been um, the relationship of that party to power, right? So the closer you, when you have friends who are powerful, um, you know, it, it those those kind of ties or those kind of associations are forgiven or they're overlooked. Exactly. But when you're out of power, the spotlight gets shone on them, right? And I think that's what's that's what's happening again since the um, since Cope split and when Cope split uh, and Vision Vancouver was created, you saw a a shift um, into a, a new ruling consensus in Vancouver uh, that was primarily dominated by the rising casino or not just the casino, but mostly the real estate industry, which is still predominant here, right? I mean, is there um, any difference between the casino industry and the real estate industry in Vancouver, either metaphorically or literally? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I think there's a bit of a difference. Uh, but I mean, it, 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 it was real estate zoning deals on casino lands that caused the initial cope split, right? Mm-hmm. That's where you saw the mayor, uh, Mayor Larry Campbell, um, walk from cope uh and of course ironically gets gets a a senate job uh sits on the gaming gaming subcommittee of the senate for you know at the same time that he's on the board of uh the you know the uh, great canadian casino corporation right so um i think if i got that right i think it was gcc uh you know and, and so of course that but it was it was a it was a split vote on the um on basically the the zoning with regard to one of these casinos that actually uh, caused that entire split and that new ruling coalition to form. You mentioned the Great Canadian Gaming Corporation. um, And uh, of course, if people have heard that name in the news this past week, it's most likely in relation to the the corporation's recently uh, resigned CEO Rod Baker, who flew with his uh, wife Ekaterina uh, to the Yukon from um, Vancouver, flew to Whitehorse, chartered a private flight into the the Yukon bush, uh, basically right along the uh, Alaska-Yukon border, uh, um, and uh, allegedly uh, lied uh, to um, uh, providers of the vaccine there, uh, saying that they were uh, local motel workers and uh, uh, got vaccine in the midst of a, of a very uh, isolated, very um, uh, vulnerable, uh, el- small, elderly, uh, remote, uh, 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 indigenous, um, and uh, and n- and small non-indigenous population. Um, but you know the fact that so that happened on the twenty. The, that story broke on the twenty fifth of January. That was one of three stories that came out on the 25th of January involving the uh, Great Canadian um, Gaming Corporation. And the fact that it was the most embarrassing one about the company really, really says something. Because the other stories that came out about the company that day, that day, were that the, um, the enormous company that was approved a month ago to buy GCGC last month, um, Apollo, had forced out its CEO because they found on the books uh, payments to Jeffrey Epstein of like $158 million. I think that's the, I think that's the number. And uh, the other story that came out again that day, January 25th to two, 
to the extent that it, the the like <laughs> the, the the like anti-vaccine crazy that lives inside all of us like uh started thinking to myself like did this guy go to the yukon in order to draw the attention away from the story like but um of course i don't actually think that i think he was just a selfish prick but um uh, the other story that came out was that uh gcgc management uh, at the river rock casino was essentially actively trying to run interference with BC Lottery Corporation um, when they were sort of looking into loan sharking activities going on at the casino uh, that are, are now being related to the ongoing uh, money laundering, um, uh, the, the massive scale money laundering operations uh, related to BC real estate. Um, uh, your union represents uh, the workers of that casino, right? Yeah, we do. Uh, we represent a couple uh, GCC casinos and prominently there uh, we fought uh, a significant strike at River Rock uh, because that same CEO didn't want to see the workers there paid a living wage or a decent wage at all. I mean, this is like, you know, just like the slimeballest of companies. And I mean, this family, like uh, Baker's father sold, I believe, um, $140 million worth of shares uh, right after the report on, um, uh, right after the report on, on, on money laundering, the initial report on money laundering was filed in, in 2016, but while the report was still sealed, uh, sold $140 million of shares in the company. Um, this was while the, the company was making a bid on a, on a large operation in, in Ontario. Um, like th th these guys, uh, tell us tell us about this company and tell us about um, the the union's involvement in the in the money laundering commission that's that's uh, or the commission of inquiry that's happening right now. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll be a bit circumspect about some of it, but I will say that um, you, you know this again. This goes back to the ruling coalition in politics, which for a while, which is Vision Vancouver, um, being centered on that you know this this key kind of casino vote, and of course, Larry Campbell went on to become a senator received, uh, you know, about $3 million worth of compensation from Great Canadian. Um, you know, and, and of course, when this was pointed out in 2018, um, and he was questioned on it, he um, uh, basically, basically said no comment uh, to the to when people said, Hey, what, what's going on here? And, um, and of course, he stepped down from that, that Senate committee. Um, and I said earlier it was gaming. It's not gaming. It's this, it was a standing committee on internal economy and budgets. Uh, it's, it's an important committee in the Senate, as, as important as they get in the Senate. But, um, you know, I, what was fundamental to that is it was this shift in, I don't think people understand the scope of m what money laundering has done in Vancouver. Um, but one of the things I wrote on a while ago was over a decade period from 2008 to 2018, the aggregate value of real estate in BC rose by over $1 trillion, well over a trillion dollars. So it went from about 500 billion to over, you know, 1.8 trillion over that period. Uh, and that's staggering, right? And of course, what, what's inflating that is a lot of money laundering, which is really the vanguard for, um, you know, domestic lenders or other lenders to inflate prices by over lending that kind of thing. We, we brought Michael Hudson in, a New York uh, land economist. Uh, we brought him into the Rio, actually, sold out the Rio in 2017 of April to talk about it. And if people want to see that, that's uh, on YouTube, that whole thing. Um, but really, the nexus of this, this company, GCC, 
you know, we unionize the employees, the employees there want to be unionized because amidst this, I mean, this is really a metaphor for what's happened in Vancouver, amidst this like flood of, you know, wealth coming through there. The workers themselves were horrifically underpaid. I mean, they, I mean, people were making, uh, you know, a few cents over minimum wage, hadn't received increases in years. I mean, it was just terrible. And it just really shows the stratification of wealth that was happening. And so we, we unionized these casinos uh, with Great Canadian Gaming because the workers didn't even have, they didn't have a pension. They didn't have benefits. Well, really any, any major benefits to speak of. They had terrible wages, you know, amidst this, uh, you know, the single largest raise in real estate prices the province and I think the country's ever seen. So it was just insane. It was absolutely out there that this was happening. And so we got involved and unionized these folks to uh, provide the organization necessary for them to fight for and the resources necessary for them to fight um, for, for better life, you know, living wages that they can actually afford to work on, and which is a difficult thing in the lower mainland. Um, you know, and so, you know, there's the immediate impacts, but there's the, the downstream effects of, of all the money laundering that's occurred and, and everything else. And that's, you know, unaffordable housing and, and the overdose crisis. I mean, th- th- those are huge byproducts of this entire uh, industry that, that that's occurred and, and the affordable housing crisis is deeper than people realize because it's the largest transfer of wealth from the public sector to the private sector in the history of this province and it was really overseen by this uh, neoliberal regime of, of lax market regulation but I think I think to pull it back to what you're asking about on the GCC side I mean we, we fought a strike over this against the CEO against this company we, we won that strike and, and, you know, thanks again, Charlie, for, you know, I know you and your family showed up to the picket line and, you know, appreciate it. I, I think when that story came out, I had a lot of feelings about it in the sense that, uh, again, it was kind of this metaphor in Canada for. You mean the story yeah, about him going to jump the queue? Yeah, jump the queue. I mean, I mean, he's going, it's like as if this indigenous community hasn't been stolen from enough. I mean, mm. he's going to do it again. <laughs> And, and, you know, he's charting, you know, and he's chartering a private flight and, and, you know, he's, he's flouting the quarantine requirements and everything else. And, you know, my, my conspiracy brain didn't go off in the same way when that story came out, but I always wonder how those stories are released, who has decided to release them. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised if he got thrown under the bus where somebody was sitting on that and said, I know, you know, this is a good way to distract from this. But um, it was interesting when, when Apollo went to buy up GCC, their initial bid was well under, way, way under uh, what the company was valued at. I mean, it was just, it was a ridiculously low bid. Um, and, I, and I didn't think it would go through. I thought it would fall apart. And it did. Um, and they had to significantly increase their, Apollo had to significantly increase their bid. Um, and I think they are, I, I know they're active around the world. I know that they have significantly, I think they control a lot of the uh, gambling interests in Italy. I mean, historically, not a country with any big problems with organized crime, as, as far as I know. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting here because in, in BC, uh, you know, we don't have the same problems that you've seen in, um, in, the, in the labor sector uh, with organized crime, at least not in, in our union or in affiliated unions that you see in, in uh, Quebec and the, in the Charbonneau Inquiry. Right. And one of the things the Charbonneau Commission, one of the things we did, uh, you know, it didn't look initially, when the new provincial government came in 2017, it didn't look initially like there would be an inquiry into money laundering. Um, and so we, we teamed up with, a, with some allies uh, 
to call for that. And, and we actually flew out one of the lawyers from the Charbonneau Inquiry um, uh, and called a press conference with a, a nonpartisan coalition, not an MPA coalition, but a nonpartisan coalition of, of politicians that said, hey, we, we want this inquiry. We want an inquiry into this. Um, you know, and, and that was successful. You know, we were able to, to force that inquiry to happen. So, I mean, the whole, the, was, whole, the whole thing really calls into question. I mean, this is the, this, the story we've been told about casinos, right, for, for, for decades now is that, is that they were run by the mob for years and then the big heartless corporations got involved and say what you will, but at least it cleaned it up. I mean, that's kind of the story of um, uh, Martin Scorsese's, uh, Martin Scorsese's casino, which is kind of all about these, uh, you know, mafia guys who are, you know, essentially in the, in Las Vegas working for the Chicago outfit. And, you know, you, you spend three hours in their world watching all the violence and all the horror. And then in the last few frames of the movie, you're supposed to be kind of a little bit, it's supposed to be bittersweet that now it's like the MGM grand and, and, you know, now it's corporate Las Vegas and there's this bizarre weirdo nostalgia that gets kind of tacked onto the end of the movie where it's like, you know, ah, you know, say what you will, when the mob guys were in charge, at least it was, you know, uh, there was style and charm or whatever. And, but, but regardless of the, the sort of weirdness of that uh, assessment of, of organized gambling in, 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 in North America, or maybe the world, it, it also just seems to me to be based on this, this false idea that there's this clear line that exists between legitimate capitalism and organized crime that just is, is, is this thing like you're either pregnant or you're not, you're either legitimate capitalism or you're, um, or you're organized crime and, and, and you'll know it when you see it. Like, these these two things have always shaded into each other and you you just kind of can't um extricate the one from the other around the edges i mean we we've been told for how long now that what's been going on in the in the vancouver housing market is just like that's just the way the market works when you leave the market to do what it's going to do and it's like there is no market. There's no market that just comes in through the window and starts messing things around. It's, it's whatever market gets made. Well, this is a really good point. I, I think you nailed it. It's whatever market gets made. And so the definition of a market is the boundaries that surround it, right? A market is only a market because of the boundaries that exist, or that, that exist, you know, to, to delineate what is market and non-market. Right. Right. And, and, uh, and that seems like a philosophical distinction, but, um, you know, my take on that whole casino nostalgia stuff was really um, organized crime or the mob was a less efficient model of extracting profit from this right. business. Right. And so, and so this is typically what you find in the pioneering days of any business or any entrepreneurial endeavor is you get these very inefficient models that are breaking new ground. And then, and then as you know, the, the, I guess the innovation of, of capitalism is being able to rapaciously, um, you know, improve the method and the mannerism by which it's able to extract wealth and value. But the right. flip side of that is it will keep extracting wealth and value until limits are imposed upon it. And, and under this kind of uh, neoliberal design of uh, no market regulation or very little market regulation, 
or rather what that means is self-regulation. So the people that have existing monopolies get to be the people who create their own private regulations by fiat and market dominance um, is that basically they'll just keep expanding um, until limits are eventually imposed on them. And, and this is the problem. The, the crux of the entire problem at its base is under regulation. There's this ideological basis to say you shouldn't regulate things like, like the real estate industry. Well, when you don't regulate tenancy in the, in the real estate industry, you get what we've happened, which is an entire generation of people in this city and in this province have been really the entire province have been priced out of being able to enter the market unless they've inherited wealth, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and that's, that, that's really true. This, this whole thing. And so I think, and that's really one where it's like, it's not even about, I mean, you get back to that, like Thomas Piketty emphasis, uh, you know, in his, in his first yeah. big book, um, uh, capital in the 21st century, that distinction that he made between um, income and wealth. And like Vancouver has reached the point where um, uh, there's, there are really very few incomes that can even get you a home in Vancouver. Like it has to be wealth. Like it has to be a store of yeah. like once living income, like, like stored and grown income. But like you, you always hear these, um, uh, these, these stories about, um, you know, you just kind of, and I mean, they're, they're always anecdotal, right? Until they're not, until somebody get, you know, comes out with a report or, or, or whatever. But like my aunt is a, is a um, elementary school principal out in the suburbs, like, um, you know, pretty deep into the suburbs, uh, you know, um, uh, and, and, you know, she'll, she'll, relay you know what her new students parents do for a living and 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 it'll be like that is not who was sending their kid to an elementary school like on the border of port coquitlam uh 20 years ago like nobody whose mom was a lawyer and dad was a dentist was going to that school like like how, and once you have people who are like university professors and, and film directors and, and whatever, like these, and, 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 and they can't afford Vancouver anymore, then like, it really is, it's what you're talking about. It has to be a generational transfer of wealth. Um, you, you can't even rectify it, even in the like meritocratic fantasy world of like you'll the those who are talented enough and hustle hard enough will will just earn well enough to 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 get to stay no it's it's neo-feudalism right it, it's this yeah. stratification of wealth and the deep irony is is that the initial advance of classical liberalism was this critique of feudalism and that it was it was a um restricting unlocking all these productive market forces that would generate massive amounts of wealth um and so the critique of feudalism at the time was, look, if you lock in uh, hereditary wealth into pieces of land, it actually restricts the ability um, of people to, to basically move goods and services, but also to um, expand your economy in a way that, that is going to make you more trade competitive. And so they, you know, the, we're, we're living that. And, and um, I, you know, I've got a theory on this and, and the, the, the basis is if you look at and it's tied to the, the resource industry in Canada and nowhere is there a better example of the innovation 
of modern capitalism than you find in the, the United States' decision to uh, become the world's largest oil exporter and, and deciding to do that and then carrying it out within a decade. It was, it was an amazing feat of innovation. And what they did is you'd have all these companies uh, you know, were started, they'd start drilling uh, the Permian Reserves, they'd start you know, in Dakota, elsewhere, they just absolutely uh, rushed at it and a whole bunch of them would go bankrupt. And as they would go bankrupt, what would happen, because it's essentially a casino of investment, but mm-hmm. as the ones that failed went bankrupt, their talent, uh, their reserves, their assets were picked up at a fire sale cost by the remaining survivors. And through that process of investors feeling that gambling on the industry, eventually, which is really the alternative form to public investment, eventually you had a situation where the U.S. became uh, so good at drilling oil and capping wells to, to inflate or deflate production that when the Saudis attempted to collapse that activity in 2015, it barely made a blip in U.S. oil production. The Saudis realized quite quickly it couldn't, they couldn't stop it, and they shifted their attention to trying to deny Russian access to uh, the European market, or not deny that Russia has tremendous access, but trying to replace Russian access to that market to some extent. And they went from trying to challenge the U.S. oil industry to basically playing a subsidiary or a servient role to it. And and that's really the big shift that you saw happen. And that, that was the reason for the 2015 oil crash. But at the same time, what we need to remember is that the, the oil and resource industry was so important to Canada at the time that, that that's why you had this new brand of conservatives coming out of Alberta that were essentially based in that ideology that came from that kind of place and um, and just reworked some of our laws, just re- really reoriented a bunch of the economy. But the banks in Canada levered themselves or, or invested themselves in the Canadian oil industry, which is statistically, and I, um, you know, I, I showed this to a, a bunch of institutional investors, but it's statistically uh, underperformed the general Canadian economy is defined by the S&P TSX composite index since 2005 as a whole, the whole Canadian energy sector has. And so the, what was the way out for Canadian banks once the resource sector in Canada start, the energy sector in particular started to fall apart in terms of being a vehicle for new investment, it's going to be with us for a long time, but as a vehicle for new investment, it started to really to, to lag behind everything. They went into real estate because that was the last preserve to shift their liabilities to make good on it. But, but here's the fundamental problem and here's why it's screwing up our economy. Because the cost of labor is critical to your trade competitiveness. And this is what Adam Smith and everyone else talked about back in the day when they were critiquing feudalism. And so when you inflate the cost of labor by inflating the cost of somebody living in your country you make the products and the services that you produce more expensive than your competitors where it's cheaper for people to live and work. And that, and that decreases your advantage when it comes to something called the balance of payments. And that's what's essentially happening here. And that's, that's one of the things. And the ironic outcome of that in Canada is that the more real estate prices and rents inflate here, the more wages have to be suppressed. Which the, And the Bank of Canada uses a euphemism for that. They call it um, well, we're, we need to keep inflation in check. Well, what do you mean keep inflation in check? The cost of everything is going up through the roof here. What do you mean? What are you keeping in check? It's a euphemism whenever they say that for they need to keep wages in check. Because if you're inflating the value, the cost of labor through real estate, the only other lever to push down in terms of decreasing the aggregate cost of labor in 
as a productive force for trade is to suppress wages at the same time. So working mm -hmm. people are being squeezed from both ends. Their, their cost of living is being astronomically raised on the rent and real estate side, but at the same time, their wages are stagnating. And, and to be frank, the Canadian labor movement has largely failed to challenge that, that, the, that position. I mean, in addition to all of what you just described, you're, you're also, you're also, I mean, or, or sort of in, 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 in the, in the shadow of what you've just described or not the shadow, but the, um, the inversion or, or the other piece that fits into the, the other part of that puzzle of, of what you've just described in terms of laying out a, a, a domestic capitalist class that's basically um, narrowed its only two possibilities to either resources or land um, in a country that is wall-to-wall -wall either broken treaties or non-existent treaties with indigenous nations who have this, you know, last 30 or 40 years of precedent law um, and a growing cultural consensus of their um, uh, inherent uh, right uh, to sovereignty. And I mean, the, the, the deep anxiety and ambiguity and ambivalence of the uh, Canadian ruling class uh, begins to come into focus, right? I mean, one of the reasons this country can only ever provide cheap talk in terms of reconciliation um, is that it, it, it genuinely is premised not in some, just some kind of moral way, but like literally materially is premised on, you know, the continued uh, uh, exploitation. And, and I mean, exploitation, you can use that in, in a charged moral, as a charged moral term, but I mean, you don't even have to. I mean, it, it, they just, they are reliant on the exploitation of land and resources that aren't theirs. Well, it's interesting because when you get into, you know, you have people came and say, well, why don't, you know, why don't they fix or ameliorate these, these impoverished conditions and uh, the reserves across the country and this kind of stuff. And it's, and people still, I think, see it as a, a bug and not a feature uh, of mm -hmm. what's happening. Right. And I mean, BC is really the frontier for this stuff because up until the 1920s, our labor force was majority indigenous. D d despite, despite the, the, um, the mass death that occurred here prior to colonization and, and during colonization, um, you know, you still had a labor force here that was, had a giant indigenous component to it. And Chief Dan George was a, was a waterfront worker. Yeah. Long term, IWW 526, uh, the Bows and Arrows local, which were ideologically from the same brand of trade unionism that I'm, or unionism that I'm from, which is the IWW and, syndicalism and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that, that's, those are my ideological roots in terms of how myself and others like me approach um, democracy inside the workplace and the goals of the trade union movement. And, and there's a direct lineal descent from what the, that IWW local did here in BC and what, where we're at uh, today. I, I remember being at a, um, uh, I remember being at a, um, uh, basically an event and uh you know, what occurred was, is, uh, or sorry, a, a labor event. And they were, somebody was a, apologizing for the, the racist role that uh, the socialist group in labor had played or the, the labor council had historically played. 
and they were apologizing on behalf of everyone. And I, I said, well, hold, hold up, you know, it, it was an erasure of history where there was multiple factions in labor and always have been. Right. And the whole labor movement wasn't racist. You had an incredibly deep, broad, anti-racist faction of the labor movement here in BC that fought that stuff the whole time. And their history was being erased. Yeah. Yeah. It was just... Yeah, the first, first. Uh, I mean, my understanding is that was the 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 first union formed in uh, Vancouver, as it were, like uh, you know, Vancouver as a uh, uh, as a f- um, you know political uh, uh, construct um, was, was an, a, a majority Indigenous waterfront local. I mean, I think the one you just described wasn't wasn't that the first union local in in Vancouver history. I don't know. If, I don't think it was the first. I think it was, um, it was definitely one of the early ones. And, and I don't, you know, I don't know the provenance of which locals came first. It was IWW Local 500, right? I think it was 526. Okay. Maybe yeah. I, I mean, I'm, 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 I mean, I'm working from uh, research yeah. for that I did for Vancouver special, which came out in 2009. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, working from pretty rusty uh, from deep from within yeah. the fog of uh, COVID memory. But the, the point being that, you know, there, there were, um, uh, there were both indigenous and non-white settler uh, uh, leadership in the BC labor movement from yeah. the very, very beginning. Yeah, there was a, there was a strong indigenous leadership from the beginning. Um, and um, it, it was, it was substantive and, and um, that history largely gets erased. There's um, a few people that are working to preserve. I mean, you look at the work that Mark Lear does at SFU. He's yeah. a brilliant yeah. labor historian. Yeah. My former um, prof. Yeah. Awesome guy. Uh, you know, Jolene uh, Parent, uh, you know, who was a, a longshore worker herself has done some excellent work to preserve that. I mean, there's, there's a lot of good people that are doing a lot of work to preserve that history and to bring it forward because it's important. It's important to know yeah. uh, uh, that that existed. And also that there is a direct link to the struggles happening inside of organized labor today that goes back directly to that time. It's, it's really this, it's some of the same struggles. Well, I mean, maybe that uh, segues into a, a, a good uh, question for us uh, to end on because, uh, you know, the speaker of the BC legislature is, is Raj Shohan, who is the uh, MLA for Burnaby Edmonds. And uh, Raj was uh, involved in the Canadian Farm Workers Union, one of the, uh, you know, for my money, one of the most inspiring uh uh, actually, uh, now that I think of it, I was supposed to write a master's thesis for Mark Lear about the Canadian Farm Workers Union and, uh, back in 2003. <laughs> I should probably get on that. Um, uh, but, um, uh, you know, one of the most inspiring uh, sort of episodes of in, in both anti-racist and uh, labor history in, in, the, in the province of a, a mostly um, uh, Punjabi uh, farm labor uh, workforce. Uh, who were also um, taking under their wing and under their leadership uh, francophone uh, workers from from Quebec and Ontario who were themselves uh, victims of of uh, intense bigotry and and hyper exploitation this is in the eighties and nineties and and um, uh, you know was part of an an incredible an incredibly brave um, uh, struggle um, for for workplace rights. Um, and, and, you know, is now, you know, an, an elected leader and, 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 and the, the speaker of the, the BC legislature. And um, so maybe uh, a good place for us to end off is, is like, what does it, what does it feel like for you uh, here in the sort of uh, 
moving into the third uh, decade of the 21st century with a, a BC NDP majority government uh, as, as, as one of the leaders of, of, of one of the biggest unions in the province. Um, what are the causes for uh, what are the causes for concern and, and, and what are the what are the causes for hope? What are the things that keep you going uh, um, through through these dark months? Yeah, well, I mean, first I'll say I, I have a lot of respect for Raj. He's, he's um, somebody I think who's never uh, lost sight of his, his roots and, and um, has has kept quite a bit of humility and, and somebody who I think, uh, uh, at least as far as I've seen, has always really, really cared for, for what's going on for working people. Um, and I think he's had a, a big impact in Burnaby and the province as well. Um, I, you know, I'll say like, when it comes to uh, and I'll put a disclaimer in front of this. I'm, I've been an NDP member for over 20 years. Um, you know, I think it's, it's interesting because organized labor used to be intimately tied into the NDP and we still kind of are like, we still are a really substantive part of the NDP, but, um, the NDP is a much broader party than mm-hmm. exists before. And it's a, it's really is a, you know, the, the, the BC is a two party state. And it's it really the two substantive parties are, you know, the BC Liberals, which is really the core of the old Socred party, and the BC NDP. And the BC Liberals, they're those two, in order, when you have a two-party state, what you have is really two coalitions. And the BC Liberal coalition is a coalition of a vast array of groups. They call themselves the Free Enterprise Coalition internally for a reason, because they're a massive coalition and they rarely see eye to eye with each other mm. and their whole uh raison d'etre to maintain the coalition is to keep try and keep the ndp out of power it and, was basically the functioning logic at the city level behind the npa and the reason yeah, it, why liberals threw in with conservatives and said look we gotta lock arms to keep the socialist hordes uh at the gates exactly right it, it was bc's probably the most has bc has had the most powerful labor movement outside of quebec in many respects. And, and so the, the nature of politics in BC is fundamentally different for that reason. And that's why BC and Quebec are anomalies in the Canadian confederal context. But, mm-hmm. you know, the NDP is also a coalition and it's a very broad coalition. And so you get labor. And when I say labor, I mean, you get every stripe of labor. And I'll be right. very clear, the labor movement is not a united movement. Um, and outside of that, you get uh, you know, there's a massive influx of, uh, you know, real estate capital inside the NDP, of, of other groups, other interests. So it's not just labor anymore inside the NDP. And I don't think people realize, like, labor is in many ways a junior partner to that coalition inside the NDP, right? And and that is, it's weird because in some ways, in some areas, in some specific areas, labor is the senior partner in that coalition, but in critical matters, when it comes to the economy, labor isn't the senior partner. And the one thing I think labor needs to adapt to is that, you know, when you go out, for example, you know, I, I helped campaign to get this government elected. I know a lot of other, my friends and colleagues in labor did as well. And when we've done that, there's often a lot of difficulty or uncomfortableness uh, critiquing or publicly criticizing the same government you just helped get elected. Right. But it's incredibly necessary. And, and, and my personal view on this is it's incredibly necessary because the core of our union's membership, for them, this government's their employer. And if you don't have that faculty of criticizing your employer, you, you, you've lost the plot. And so 
I think what we're seeing now is labor is trying to, you know, organized labor, organized labor's leadership is trying to figure out um, how do you criticize a government that you've campaigned and, and worked to hard to get elected that has incredible progressive people inside of it, like Raj, but also, uh, you know, is promoted, you know, incredibly right-wing icons as well. You know, for example, um, you know, Fazal Millar, who famously is a longtime Fraser Institute ideologue, um, you know, and he, he promoted the idea of abolishing the minimum wage in this province. Well, he's now, he, they, this government promoted him, right? So there's, there's, there's all the, it's a big coalition and lay, organized labor in this province still hasn't found out its feet or worked out a formula to be able to feel comfortable to criticize the government, but at the same time say, hey, uh, you know, we're, crit we're criticizing this government, but we're not saying that we prefer the free enterprise coalition um, because we don't. And, and right. that trips a lot of people up, but um, it's, it's important for labor to find its footing because if they don't, um, they're going to answer to their membership pretty hard, you know? And I think uh, it's, it's something I think hasn't been resolved yet or sorted yet. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of like you see this a lot in sports and stuff. And I'm not a sports person, but as a as, as an anthropological observer, I think you see like you see from a view from a distance uh, that there is such factionalism around it because it's a uniting ideology. Right. So supporting a political party like supporting a sports team is a uniting ideology. It doesn't matter. It, it erases some of our class background, some of our. Um, you know, our interests, our hobbies, like all this other kind of stuff, you know, it's such a simple uniting factor that it actually breaks down a lot of these barriers that would normally serve to separate and divide us, which is, which is in many ways a good thing. But on the other side of that, it can also obscure and occlude some of those important points of division that need to be recognized and engaged with uh, in order to successfully navigate society. And, and this is, and this is what I'll, I'll kind of end with on that is that whatever that engagement is, we're living in a fantasy world if we think that that engagement is powerful when it's done as an individual. It's only powerful fundamentally when it's done as a social group, right? And, and um, you know, Bakunin makes this point in one of his letters in talking about, um, you know, Schopenhauer. He's like, I think Schopenhauer is right. Our philosophy started off on a false basis. It, it begins with the community. And, and from my standpoint, um, you know, being really, you know, as you know, in, into the kind of like um, platonic school of thought, I, I, that is echoed throughout that entire school of thought. So I, I just think as, a, as, a, as, a, as an elected union leader, the interventions that we make uh, socially need to be collective. And in order to make them, we need the necessary structures and mechanisms to have democratic decision making to make them uh, so that we move away from that perception as being an insurance model and towards a vibrant democratic politically representative body whose prime interests are wages and working conditions. But that's not the only political interest of our membership. And it's written into all our constitutions that we're politically representative and that those aren't the limits of our engagement. So, Not only do I insist still that you are the most muscular uh, labor leader in the province, but also the only one who would end an interview with, you know, as Bakunin said about Schopenhauer, uh, and, and, and man, do I ever wish uh, the movement uh, had more of you, but I will take what I get. And uh, I am uh, pleased to be able to share with the people 
who are listening uh, what the joy of a conversation with uh, Paul Finch uh, is like. Thank you very much, brother. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks, Charlie. Too kind and uh, good, good chatting with you. Yeah, I will talk to you soon.